Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, Portico. Great to have you with us today. You were singing like you believe it. I love it. When I can hear you down front and just resonates in the room and online, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, listen, if you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been visiting over the last couple of weeks, we would like to get to know you personally. So at the Atrium Cafe, which is easy to find, go through our main entrance. As you're leaving through the main entrance, on the right-hand side, we have an Atrium Cafe. We'll have an Americano, espresso, a cafe latte for you. And we would love to share a coffee with you, get to know you personally, and just say hi. So I'm going to be back there. My wife will join me. Pastor Joel will be there. You know if you're a regular... Okay, I don't have to say any more. All right, so bring your guests. If you brought guests with you, be sure to drop by say hi. We'd love to meet you. A couple of calendar dates that we got a really exciting next Sunday. Annie Lobert is going to be here, and we'll talk about that before you leave today. That's a really exciting date. One date I need to get on your calendar, it's August 27. Can you believe I'm talking about August? feel like Ontario. We just started vacations. August 27, we are going to have a very, very special day. First Century Foundations. Pastor Jeff was on our staff. He's now director at First Century Foundations. He has made arrangements for us to have on display here. There's a recent archaeological discovery in Israel called Magdala, the synagogue at Magdala, right on the Sea of Galilee. They unearthed what's called the synagogue stone, and there are the Israeli government made replicas, and they've released one to come here to Portico. So we're going to have here on our premise on that Sunday the opportunity. You can go get your picture taken there. We're going to explain why it's so significant. Very, very unique discovery. We want you to be here, hear that story, and that's going to be featured on the 27th. Well, let's get ready to go. Get your Bibles out. Get your notes. You can download our app, fill in the blanks as we go along. Those of you maybe for the first time in the room, you're going, what was with Moses on the video for today? Well, we're in a series called Moses Unscripted. And we've been working our way through the life of Moses and some of the challenges, the wins, the losses, you know, the significance of leading Israel. And we've been in the series, and we're in season four, and we're right at the edge of the promised land. What should have been the most spectacular moment in the history of Israel as a nation, an emerging nation, and it just seems to crumble and fall apart. And so we're going to have a look at that in a few moments. We're going to talk about maybe what went wrong and what do we learn as we walk through this. But as you're turning in your Bibles, you're going to go to Numbers chapter 14, and that's where we're going to pull our story from today. While you're turning there, let me take you into more recent history to set up what we're going to share. It was 1980. It was the Olympic hockey competitions, the gold medal round of the competitions. Two teams are going to face off. It would be the U.S. Olympic team against the indomitable Soviets. Everybody had favored the Soviets to win. They were the powerful team. They had won so many times in the past, and the Americans knew that. So Coach Herb Brooks did something very unusual. He did an exhibition game at Madison Square Gardens three days before the Olympics, 
And he invited the Soviets to play against the American team, and he thought it would be good. They could get sort of a groundswell of public support, have the competition, get some momentum going into the Olympics. So they set it up. Everybody shows up for the game. The game begins, and those of you that are sports fans, you know that the Soviets trounced the Americans. They defeated them 10 to 3. It was a public humiliation. So now move into the Olympics just a few days later. As the Olympic Games go on, the two teams that will work their way to the gold medal competition, U.S. versus the Soviets. If you would have stepped into the players' changing room that night, the U.S. players' changing room, you wouldn't have had to ask a question. The silence in the room would have been deafening. Everybody knew what they were thinking. They had just been defeated by a staggering loss. And now they're going to battle for the Olympic gold. How could they ever achieve this victory? Imagine now that you're the coach. You're Herb Brooks. Your players are waiting for you to inspire them to realms of greatness that they've never achieved before. And Herb Brooks would walk into that room, speak into their world, because he knew that everyone else was thinking the Soviets were going to win. When Herb Brooks walked into that room, he knew he needed one thing. He needed a miracle. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. Not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Great moments. Yeah, you can applaud them. They won the game. Great moments are born from great opportunity. The U.S. team would go in to rally to win the gold 4-3 to three against the Soviets. 
Why do I show that to you? I don't even know that the coach understood the power of one statement. That when he stood before his players and he said, great moments are born from great opportunity. And those players rallied together, played as a team, played their hearts out. They were down in the second period, 3-2, to two, came back, scored two goals in the third to win the gold. Israel was standing at the cusp of an incredible opportunity. Moses had led Israel right up to the edge of the promised land. We've been tracking with this, and please feel free to go back and listen to our messages to stay all the way up to speed with where we are. But today they're at the cusp of the promised land. He's brought them so that they're literally within reach of everything that God had promised them. It was the opportunity for them to now have a nation, their own nation. It was an opportunity for them to begin to thrive and experience what it would be to be in community together. And it was an opportunity for them to have God reign sovereign and to have a theocracy in worlds where monarchs and dictators were ruling. Great moments come out of great opportunity. But friends, Israel's great opportunity, which should have produced a great moment, became a great disaster. We know the Bible tells us that the spies came back from the land. Twelve spies, one for each of the tribes, stepped in to report on the land. They came back, they brought visible evidence. They brought everything that would verify everything that God had promised them was exactly the way that the land was to be. It was bountiful. It meant it was productive. It was rich. It was resource-heavy. It was going to be the place where God said, you will prosper as we walk in a covenant relationship together. And as all of the evidence is displayed before the people, 10 of the 12 would raise their voices. The contrarians within the group would begin to speak out, and they would talk about the indomitable giants in the land, the people that were bigger than we ever could imagine they could be. How could we possibly take this land? They were in the locker room facing their great moments. All they had to do was rally and trust and move into that land. And yet many of us know the story of how this would become the moment of their greatest faltering, and it would lead into a ridiculous rebellion. If your Bibles are open, Numbers chapter 14, let me pick up the story, and let's learn from this and see what life principles we can apply to our lives. Verse 1, it starts off this way. It said, when they heard this report that night, all the members of the community raised their voices, and they wept aloud. And all of the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or even in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and we should go back. So on the very edge of what should have been their biggest celebration as a nation and a newly emerging group of people, a community of followers of God, they stumble. And I have to wonder, how many times have you and have I had great opportunities within my reach, within our reach, and an opportunity that could have turned into an incredible moment, but we stumble over the very same things that Israel did? So what was it in their world that caused this upside-down response to what God was already handing them 
What did they hear from the spies from this reconnaissance team, and what can we learn today? So take your notes out if you're filling in the blanks. Let me give you a couple of principles to take away. Number one, I think we all need to learn from is this. Popular opinion is not always the best path forward. Just because it seems like the popular thing to do, just because everybody's talking about it and everybody is celebrating it and everybody's suggesting it, doesn't mean that it is necessarily the right thing to do. And sometimes we get caught up in the emotion of popular opinion and we miss the opportunity that was put right in front of us. It happened for Israel. So this reconnaissance team of 12 go into the land. They come back. Ten speak contrarian voices. Two say, no, 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 we can pull this off. But who wins? It's the popular opinion. It's the group that's able to force and impose their opinion on the crowds. And the crowds begin to listen to the ten of them. They're going, no, no, there's giants in the land. There's these huge people. We'll never be able to beat them. They have these huge walled cities. And meanwhile, all the fruit and all the vegetables and everything is around them. And they're looking at the bounty of the land. Remember where these people were? They're in the wilderness. They were crying for food. They were begging for water. And now in front of them, the spies are brought back. And they go, look at the bounty of this land, but let's not go in. We can't pull this off. And so this movement of popular opinion begins to sway public opinion to the place where they resist moving forward as God had promised them. Look at Numbers 13, verse 20. It's in your notes. The people who live there, this is the report, they are powerful and the cities are fortified fortified and they're very large. And the Israelites spread a bad report about the land that they had explored. So now all of Israel is listening to this report, and their hearts begin to melt with fear. Now, why is it that popular opinion can be so potentially dangerous? Because sometimes we know it's okay. But where's the hidden danger in popular opinion? Here's what I think it is. It's when we fail to form our own opinion first, and we simply get caught up in the emotion of everyone else's opinion. Have you ever seen that happen? Go to a church business meeting. Not here. Any church. We can get caught up in popular opinion without actually thinking through where we stand on opinions. Every time we have a national election, it doesn't matter what country is going to go through this, and every time politicians get up and speak, normally the people, instead of thinking through logically the positions, they get caught up in the emotion of what the opinion polls are saying. And so it's easy to get moved away from a direction if we haven't thought through and researched and prayerfully assessed for ourselves, and that's what Israel did. Instead of taking the time to actually look and investigate and pray and assess all the bounty of the land, to go back and look at the faithfulness of God leading them all the way through the wilderness, and God says, hey, this is already going to be there, but I got you covered. Don't worry about that. They listened to ten voices that swayed them and turn their hearts away from the vision and direction that God had given them. I like what Proverbs said, 14, 12, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. In other words, sometimes we can get caught up in the emotion of things and moved along in what seems to be right and popular, but it can actually lead towards the death of a vision, the death of a dream. Albert Einstein, one of his famous quotes on the screen for you, what is right is not always popular, and what is popular is not always right. He nailed that. That fits so appropriately here with the Israelites. Look at Numbers 14, 1 and 2. That night, all the members of the community, what did they do when they heard the report? They raised their voices and they wept aloud and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Even Jesus warned about popular opinion. He said, be careful when it comes to faith. 
Know the path that you're on. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many will enter through that. It's an interesting look at how popular opinion can move us away from personal responsibility. Don't toss out personal responsibility when it comes to your faith journey. That's what Israel did, and it cost them. Number two, write it down. Here's another life principle. Discouragement, if left unchecked, discouragement will eventually undermine your faith. That if you don't check it early and deal with discouragement... It can root itself into your life, and it will begin to undermine your faith. Now, here's a question. How many of you have ever set a really big, audacious goal for your life? You just say, I'm going to do something big. Some of you maybe change careers. Maybe you're going to write a book. You're going to write a blog. Maybe some of you are going to lose weight, or you're going to go to the gym. You set out a huge goal, and you go, this is what I'm going to achieve. We do it every New Year's, and then we break it by about the, you know, January 3rd. But we set these huge goals that we go, no, no, I'm going to pull this off. I'm really going to do it. Do you remember what it felt like when you never met the goal and you started to think about why did I set that goal in the first place? And when you fail, your mind undergoes this barrage. Your inner voice kicks in and your inner voice begins to say, oh, why did you even bother telling people you're going to do that? You're such a loser. You could never pull that off. You don't have the skills and the ability. And we allow ourselves to get beat up by our own inner voice because discouragement just begins to destroy us. Proverbs 13, 12, it says in the message, the paraphrase, unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick. That's so true. That if disappointment can seed into your spirit, if it continues unchecked, it'll wreck your faith. And we see this with Israel. Israel danced with discouragement and disappointment. And it undermined God's best for their lives. Now, I think all of us in the room, I would venture to say that all of us at some point, at some season in our life, we were affected by discouragement. And do you notice how it affects our mood? It just slips in and starts to change your mindset. It changes how we relate to people. Sometimes we want to withdraw because we feel so disappointed by where we are in our journey. We don't even like to share it with other people. Anybody tracking so far? Or if you're really in a deep, funk, depression. Do you know who you can't stand? Really happy people. People who life is going good for them, and they come along and go, hey, my life is going really good. Look what I have. And you go, yeah, good for you. Yeah, right. Let's be honest about this, because we've all been there when we go through this. And you look at this, and you begin to realize that discouragement, if we don't check it early, it'll actually undermine our faith. Did you know that discouragement is infectious? Because it alters your mood, and your mood impacts the people around you. So you can either encourage people by your mood, or you can discourage people by your mood. We just experienced it in worship. The way we responded together as the energy and the joy, and as we began to encourage each other, and we began to clap and raise our hands and sing, what happened in the room? The temperature, the volume of the room. Did you notice that? Some of you, we had to tie you down to your chairs just to keep you in the room with us. But change it the other way. Sit next to somebody that goes, there is no way on God's green earth I'm going to raise my hands. Nobody in this room, nobody online. But your discouragement can actually affect the people around you. Because now they're all going, oh, I wonder what's wrong with them today. Oh, somebody took their chair 
We have no reserve seating in our church. Somebody took their parking spot. So our, our mood gets affected by our discouragement. That discouragement can eventually undermine your faith. It happened with Israel. They became so discouraged about the negative report. Let me put it in the screen. It's there in your notes. Numbers chapter 14, verse 3. Here's what the people said. I'm just going to read it off the screen if you don't mind. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children are going to be taken as plunder. Go to the next screen for me, please. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, let's back this up to the very first part of that verse, so I want you to see it on the screen or in your Bibles. Could you back the slide for me? Why? First question. Whenever discouragement sets in, first thing that happens is doubt. We start to question everything. They start to question God. God, why are you doing this? Now, watch the progression. So why is God bringing us to this land? Interesting because right now they're still blaming God, and eventually they'll blame Moses and Aaron. But why is the Lord bringing us to the land? Then they start to project into the future, so they allow what happens. When you get doubt, it begins to feed anxiety and uncertainty or worry. So why is God bringing us here? To let us fall by the sword. Our wives and our children will be taking us plunder. Their faith is being decimated. They're already projecting what they're going to fail at before they've even made a decision to go forward. You see what happens with discouragement? You start to blame, so you have doubts. Now you have worry and anxiety. Go to the next slide. It says, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Well, what's that? Friends, that's fear. That's fear. That's when we can't anticipate the outcome because we project ourselves into it. We start to look back at the past, and we prefer our past over our future, and we allow fear to choke faith. And if we're not careful, discouragement begins to undermine our faith, and it's like our faith gets choked off. Have you ever been there where your faith begins to get stifled? You need somebody to give you a Heimlich just to kind of get that fear off of you, don't you? And we see this with Israel, and they allow this bad report to generate and move around the camp, and it starts to stir everything up. Now, what I really love about this story, and if you look at these words again, let me just spend a moment. Here's what they said. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Does anybody else find that humorous? I do. So if you're not with me, let me explain why. This is a little bit of our demented thinking that happens when we get together with our sermon prep team. We're sitting in the room, and one of the pastors said, how delusional were they? So the more we started to think about it, if you were an Israelite and somebody suggests we should go back to Egypt, and everybody's going, yeah, that's a really good idea. Was Pharaoh standing at the edge of Egypt waiting for Israel to come back? No. This is a guy, he lost his firstborn son. His army had been decimated. His land had been decimated. His workforce had been decimated. Yet the Israelites are going, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I think Pharaoh would love to see us again. Why don't we all just walk back there? And when we get there, you know what Pharaoh's going to do? He's going to go, oh, where did you guys go? Did you go on a little vacation? I've missed you so much. Go kill the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration. In fact, let's get new clothes for everybody. Look at those sandals. Same ones since you left the country. Let's give you some new shoes. Let's just have a party. Oh, don't worry about the past. We'll just kind of wash it away. Hey, in a couple of days, you guys are all good to go back to things as were, right? You're good to be slaves again, and I'm good to be Pharaoh? That's what happens when fear rules over our faith. We start to glamorize our past, and we avoid the possibilities and the opportunities in our future. 
and they were complaining, and they allowed discouragement to seep into their spirit, and it was going to destroy everything that God had intended for them. What do you get when you mix popular opinion and discouragement together? You take those two thoughts, popular opinion, you mix it with discouragement, number three, it's in your notes, write it down, rebellion will unleash serious repercussions. If you take popular opinion that's running negative and you mix it with discouragement, that's, that's the stuff of world history. That's coups and overthrows and wars. That's what happens. So here in the notes we find with Israel, that if you mix these two things together, the natural sequence for them is that their rebellion would unleash serious repercussions. Now, we've all been there. How many of you have ever been rebellious in your life at least once? Bible says all have sinned. Raise your hand. There we go. Uh, you're such good people. I love being a pastor here. You're such innocent, pure people. That's why it's so easy to pastor. We've, we've all had experiences where we've rebelled in our life. I know we have. That's why we come to church together. Only Jesus is perfect. You know that I'm not perfect. I just gave you a moment there. You could have gone amen or something. I, I'm not perfect. Now, I loved going to school. I was one of those kids that school for me, I enjoyed. I was good at school. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed my math and my sciences and English, everything. Really enjoyed being there. But I learned something in grade three that maybe some of you learned as well. It's this. What's the problem? I attended grade three, and I had mistakenly assumed that this was, what's it called? Are you artistic? Yeah. I'd mistakenly assumed that this was a measuring instrument. I was excited. We were going to learn numbers, measurement, math, science. It all goes together. I thought, this is fantastic. Now, occasionally in class, when you would misbehave, which I may have done at the odd time, the teacher could usually go, <coughs> and that was enough to get your attention, or they'd just call you right out, Doug, and that definitely got my attention. Or if they happen to be, remember this, they'd walk up and down the aisles when you're doing your work, and they'd sneak up from behind you, and then you'd get that little flick on the ear or the little tap on the back. It never happened today, but I'll tell you, they'd get your attention, wouldn't they? It was in grade three I realized what this was. This was to extend the reach of the teacher's arm that they could go over a row and get you in the other row. They are unbelievable. There's like a union of these people that think up these measures. And so I was misbehaving one time and the teacher was walking down the other row and I thought, I'm good, I'm good. All of a sudden over the row, whack on the back. And it was like, ouch. Serious repercussions for a rebellion. If you really dialed it up, I wonder how many of you could join me in this experience right up here. Look at the screens. (laughs) Ever been there? Oh, yeah. That's called standing in the corner for those of you, and that's not studying letters up close in case you think that's a really good student. That was called discipline, standing in. The only thing worse than this was to go to the principal's office. So when you get called out, it would be go stand in the corner in front of the room and your peers would be snickering as you'd be walking there. You could never get away with any of this stuff today. This is so politically incorrect now. You just couldn't pull it off. Teachers couldn't use a yardstick Most of us don't know what centimeters and meters and measurements are anymore. And if a teacher said for a student to go stand in the corner, the entire class has to go stand in the corner because we do everything in groups now. We don't do anything individually. Man, I'm 
I'll tell you what, if you're a teacher in the room or you're watching and you're a teacher, you're my hero. We applaud you. We should give a big hand to our teachers today. You got a job. I think every one of us, we should all write notes to our teachers and say, we are so sorry. As students, we are just so, so sorry. We love our teachers. Well, why did I tell you the story? Because in Israel's story, it's the same. That rebellion would unleash serious repercussions. And God would have to judge them in this moment because their hearts gave in to fear rather than embracing faith. And they begin to show signs of this rebellion. A couple of things. First, the Bible says that they were rejecting Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against their leaders. We don't want you guys anymore. We're tired of this. Then the Bible says that they talked about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Can you believe this? Two of the 12 who come back because they gave a positive report saying, we could do this. They go, no, no, let's stone them for having a positive attitude. And they were willing to actually murder their peers because their peers would even dare suggest that they move forward in faith. And then it gets a little higher. Numbers 14.4, I put it in your notes, we'll put it on the screen. And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and we should go back to Egypt. And you go, well, what's the big deal, Doug? This was blatant rejection of God. What they were really saying, it was an overt declaration. They're going, God, we don't trust you. You have maybe brought us this far. We don't trust you anymore. We want to go back to Egypt. We're going to choose our own leader. God, you're out, and we will choose who we want to have. Well, how does God feel about this? So up until this time, if you read, and you should read the whole story, Numbers chapter 14, it's a great read. At this point, the Bible says that that God, the presence of God, descends so he could speak with Moses. And God and Moses begin to have a conversation about the whole thing. And God was, if I could use the word in the most emphatic way, ticked with Israel. The Bible actually says that God said to Moses, that's it. I'm going to kill them. In fact, well, why don't we just read it? It's better. Numbers 14, 12. I will strike them down with a plague, and I'm going to destroy them. And Moses, I'm going to make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Wow. I think God was a little bit upset. I think they'd kind of pushed him over the edge. Now, imagine if you were Moses in this moment. What would you have done if God descended and says, hey, how about I raise you up and make a great nation out of you, and we'll just, like, wipe out all these people. Now, remember, Moses has led them. He understands what God is frustrated with. This was his golden opportunity to go, I'm in, God. Let's do this. Just, like, wipe them out right now, and I'll get my own nation. Who wouldn't want their own nation? The nation of Moses. But the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And he sets aside, what an incredible test. He sets aside a privileged opportunity. And he said, God, don't do this. Don't do this. Because if you do this, if you kill them all at once, then Egypt's going to hear about it, and they're going to say their God couldn't even get them into the promised land. The Egyptians are going to tell the Canaanites, this whole thing is going to be a dismal failure, and nobody's going to win, God. So don't erase them from the very face of the earth, and don't use me to be the person. But God, remember, remember your faithfulness to Israel. 
And so God concedes to Moses' point, but there was going to be repercussions for their rebellion. So Numbers 14, 28, and 29, here's what we read. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you, that being the Israelites, the very thing I heard you say, in this wilderness your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. So God listens to Moses, and he goes, okay, Moses, I, I, I agree. But here's what I'm going to do. There will be a remnant, and I will do what I promise to do, and the people will populate, and that will be their land, and I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. But those that were 20 years old or older who were counted in the census and who grumbled against me, he goes, they don't get to go in. Friends, even in God's grace and in God's forgiveness, there are always repercussions and consequences for our decisions, aren't there? And we learn that in life, and we know that even in our relationships and our work and our finances, there's repercussions when there's rebellion with, what we, with how we use what God has given us. Now, there are people that will immediately say, you see, this is where I struggle with the Bible. This is where I have a difficult time. God is so angry all the time, and he does these rash acts of violence that he's going to wipe out an entire nation. Why would anybody want to serve a God like that? See, if you take and you just pull a verse out of its context it would be easy to assume that God is acting out of his anger rather than out of his love. So let me take you to another verse, Numbers chapter 14 and 22. God said, Not one of those who saw my glory and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and they tested me... How many times? Whoa, ten times. How many plagues? Not a trick question. Ten. Ten plagues. God performed miracles in Egypt ten times for the people of Israel. And then they tested God ten times in the wilderness. God wasn't being rash and impatient. God was being patient and long-suffering. In his grace, he had borne with the disobedience and the rebellion and the rejection time after time after time. And God says, ten times you have tested me. So now those that have seen my faithfulness, and those that have seen my patience, they will not enter into the promised land. But those of the next generation, they will. And so we see God in his great love for his people and his great love for humanity. There, have, there has to be repercussion for disobedience. But God will always preserve a remnant so that faith stays strong. Well, what else can we learn from Israel here? One last principle real quickly. Number four. And when you look at the story I see the story of where faith engenders a spirit of optimism and trust. That in the middle of everything that is dismal and dark, it's really hard to go through these stories and you go, oh man, again, look at Israel. Can they never get this right? Well, I don't always get it right either. But in the middle of the story, I love the fact that I see this little window, this gem of truth, where faith engenders a spirit of optimism and trust. You go, Doug, where do you see that? Joshua and Caleb. I see two that are willing to stand resolute in their faith and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before everybody runs rampant and they go violent against God, let's remember what God has done for us. And it's their voices that begin to surface to the top and you begin to hear faith rise in their spirit, optimism in their heart. Numbers 14, 7 and 8, Joshua and Caleb said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land that we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Now watch this. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. 
They were saying, can you not see that God has already brought us this far? God has been faithful to us. God's provided food in the wilderness. He provided water in the wilderness. God will lead us into this land if, if we'll be faithful to him. So here in the middle of what could be just such a dismal picture for Israel, faith and trust begin to emerge and hope is once more set into the heart of the people. Oswald Chambers was a 20th century preacher and evangelist. One of his famous books, My Utmost for His Highest, but Oswald is quoted as saying, and I love this quote, he says, seeing is never believing. Seeing is never believing. We interpret what we see in light of what we believe. Did you catch the twist? Seeing is never believing. We interpret what we see in light of what we believe. So for Israel in this moment, they needed to learn that. He goes on to say this, that faith is confidence in God before you see God emerging. Friends, that is so powerful in our lives. That faith is that I believe that God will do what he said and promised he would do even before I see the hand of God move on my behalf. That when my sickness seems to be dominating in my body, my faith says that Jesus, by his stripes, I will be healed. That God is going to do what he promised he would do. And even if I haven't seen God's hand move yet, I believe by faith that God's power is greater than the sickness that's in my body. I believe the same in my finances, that when I'm struggling with my finances, that I'm faithful to God, and I believe God, and I give my best to God, and I don't grumble against God, that God in His faithfulness says, I will move my hand on your behalf. But friends, we often want God to prove Himself first before we're willing to put faith out there. That's not faith. Faith is when we trust God before we see the evidence of His presence. How do I know this? Peter and John were on the way to the temple after they had been empowered by the Spirit. On the way to the temple, a a man is begging at the gates, asking for money, asking for support. Peter walks up and he goes, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold, but here's what I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And you go, okay. But watch carefully what he did. He didn't stop and say, now Jesus, you get the man up on the feet and I'll make the declaration first. He says, I don't have silver. I don't have gold. Here's what I do have. I believe what I don't see yet. I believe that you're going to rise up and you're going to walk and you're going to do it in the name of Jesus. And he takes him by the hand and helps him to his feet. And the man's limbs become whole and he begins to leap and dance. And he starts a revolution in the temple because he trusted in that moment. Friends, we have indomitable giants that we face every day. I don't know what your giant is. You don't know what my giant is. They're they're personal. But we can either be where the Israelites were, where, where the popular opinion and the discouragement and the fear and the rebellion is dominating our lives, or we can move over to the other side, where we go, faith will engender in my spirit a spirit of optimism and trust, and I believe that God can do what he says he will do. That's why the Bible says when it comes to salvation, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved didn't say if you see Jesus raised from this. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, for with your heart you believe and are justified. With your mouth you confess and you are saved. What are you doing? You are professing declaration and believing before you see. That's the power of what we learn. Here's what I believe. Every one of us is given great opportunities. Great moments come out of great opportunities. But too many of us will miss the moment because we allow the opportunity to defeat us. Don't let that happen, because God is with you. 
Moses said to the people, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. God's got your back, amen? Father, this morning I pray in the name of Jesus that you would allow us to catch the spirit and the truth of your word, that we would not resist you, we would trust you, that Lord, whatever people are facing today, those watching online, those that are in the room, whether it's discouragement, disappointment, Father, no matter what the emotion or what the physical situation of our life is, today would you by your spirit stir our hearts afresh that God, you are on our side, that Jesus, you paid the price for our sin that we might have new life in you. And it doesn't end there, that you would lead us into new promises and new blessings every day as we trust you. So I pray for those that are going through bouts of discouragement. May the joy of the Lord be their strength today. I pray for those that are bound up with fear today. I pray, Father, may the Spirit of Christ liberate them, for we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind today. And, Lord, I pray for the requests that we pray for day in and day out. May we never tire or fail in our prayers, because you are faithful, God. And you will come through. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.